fitness accounts. Paul began to talk about all the people that saw him. And in fact, in one meeting after Jesus rose from the dead, he showed himself alive to over 500 people just in one meeting. We saw that if you were to add all the people up in Scripture, just the ones we know that personally, visibly saw the resurrected Savior, if you were to give each of them 15 minutes on a witness stand in a court of law, it would take more than five days just for the ones we know to get through with their testimony. That's eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We think of the Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Who are these people? These are people that knew of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Matthew saw him. He knew that Mark was instructed by Peter. He knew of the resurrection. And, and the Gospel was propagated for the first three or 400 years of the church by people saying, listen, I saw him alive myself. As time went on, I knew someone that saw him. It all went back to the eyewitness accounts. And then there was a third evidence Paul shared. And the third evidence was the fact, he said, it doesn't matter who you talk to. Those that saw the resurrected Savior, they all tell the same story. There's no variance. All of them tell the same story. And we saw last Sunday that because of the resurrection in Jesus, we can have purpose and freedom and hope and enjoy. That was the first part of 1 Corinthians 15. Today we're going to be at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. And listen, Paul has been building to a crescendo here. Paul has been getting to a point where he is expressing something that should bring joy to all of our hearts. I've got to let you know up front, uh, I'm fired up, I'm ready to go. I'm going to have the time of my life preaching today. I don't know how to preach this in any other way than with joy and excitement and enthusiasm. I hope you receive it that way because Paul is sharing with Christians what it really means to us that Jesus rose again from the dead. If you can shout in handwriting, the verses we're going to read today were shouted by the Apostle Paul. I mean, they were all caps and texting, however you want to say it. He was letting us have it here. So if you're able, I want to invite you to join me in standing as we look to this passage here. If you're glad you're in church, say amen. amen. All right. If you're ready for some preaching, say amen. amen. All right. You're going to get it whether you're ready or not. I already told you I'm ready to go. I hope you guys came uh, excited. So I'm going to pick up our reading a little bit mid-story. And again, if you'll forgive me for that, I just don't want to read the entire chapter again. We did that last week. And so you guys know where we are, uh, where we've been. So I'll pick it up a little bit mid-story beginning in verse 54. The Bible says, so when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Now, let me give you a little idea of what's happening here. Our body, these earth suits, you know, we're all aware this is not the real me, but I got to travel around in something. So this earth suit of mine, uh, the Bible would say it's corruptible. It is not immortal. It's mortal. And the Bible talks about a transition that takes place when we come to know Jesus Christ. We have an opportunity to be saved forever. And the Bible refers here to those moments in time where we'll come to the place where that corruptible puts on incorruption, the mortal puts on immortality. And I love that saying at the end, death is swallowed up in victory. Let me tell you how awesome my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is. Listen to this. He killed death. I mean, that's awesome, all right? So he killed death. Let's go on in verse 55. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain 
in the Lord. I want you to go to the end of verse 55, if you would, please. There's kind of a rhetorical question here asked of the grave. The question is this in the end of verse 55. Where is thy victory? Well, the Bible goes on in verse 57 to share with us that our victory is through our Lord Jesus Christ. But, but I want us to think of this with the backdrop of the resurrection in mind. Where is thy victory? And I believe this passage can encourage us in that regard today. So let's have open hearts and let's be ready. Our Father, thank you for your word, your love, the opportunity we have to be in this place right now to learn and grow. Encourage hearts today. We need your help, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Teachers do it all the time. They'll get students together and they'll begin to teach and they'll share the facts and the process and, and all they think the student needs to know. And then at the end of sharing that which they believe the student needs to know, they'll then present a problem and require that the students come up with a solution to the problem. Now teachers do not present the problem and ask for a solution because they don't know the answer, they're the teacher. Uh, they not only know the solution to the problem, they understood the problem, they came up with it on their own. And in a very similar way, that's what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He's invested all of chapter 15 to this point, talking about the power of the gospel message and the reality of the resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. And then he comes to his students, if you would, at the end of this chapter, and he begins to talk to them about this matter of victory, this question, where is thy victory? And that question, of course, came on the heels of one of the greatest passages in the Bible dealing with the topic of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And, and after a pause, Paul reiterates again that our victory is found in Jesus Christ and that the victory of Jesus Christ was found in his victory over death as he rose again. And as Paul heads into the closing verse of this 15th chapter, verse 58, he begins with a very, very important word. I'd like to ask all of you to look in your copy of God's Word or on with the neighbor at verse 58. I want you to see the very first word in this very last verse of this incredible chapter on the topic of the resurrection. He opens with the word, therefore. Now, a great tool in studying your Bible is to understand that whenever you see a therefore in the Bible, you've got to see what it's there for. And, and that word is, in other words, it's, it's Paul's way of saying, guys, based on everything I just told you, therefore. Guys, I just spent an entire chapter of God's word. I just taught you all you need to know about what the gospel is and how that it all hinges on the resurrection and why you can believe the resurrection. I told you that Jesus is alive. Therefore, based on everything I've just said, let me give you this last little verse to fire you up before sending you out into life title of this series is because he lives and that word therefore very well could have been because he lives he he spends the whole chapter saying he's alive he's alive he's alive he's alive he gets to verse 58 and he says because he lives therefore therefore he shared the principle in the first part of the chapter and in the end he's sharing the promise and the promise only has power as it's built upon the principle the truth found in the course of the chapter Therefore, therefore, with that we enter into an incredibly helpful verse. Paul is fired up. I've got to tell you, I said earlier, if you can shout in your writing, in the Greek language, you actually can. And, and Paul here was uh, just overcome with joy at what he was sharing. And we will be when we learn it as well. If you're here today and you know that you're person of faith you trusted jesus as your savior i already said if you if you don't know that i'm glad you're here we're going to talk about that but for those of you that know that 
I want to share some statements with you we can take from God's word that we can say in the most personal way. Statement number one, you can say, I am covered by an unending love. I'm covered by an unending love. Now let's go back to verse 58. We read, therefore, because he lives, and then Paul goes on to say this, my beloved brethren. And and I love to stop whenever I see that word beloved, and and I want to share with you what it is when the Bible says beloved, what you can take from that. When the Bible says beloved, it means you beloved. That's the point the Bible's making here. Now, I understand the context. Paul's writing a letter to a church in Corinth, to a bunch of people he knows and he loves, and, and he says, therefore, my beloved brethren, beloved, beloved, and, and uh, we, we understand the context there. I get what's happening there. You can say, well, it's a stretch to say that because Paul said that, that I can consider myself to be covered with an unending love, but I would say to you, no, it's not a stretch at all. Because that familial love, that familial love brought about by a shared faith was all made possible because of a Savior who bled and died on the cross, was buried, and three days later rose again. You see, when we come to know Jesus as our Savior, Jesus said in John 3 that we're born again into the family of God by faith. That means God becomes my Father, and if you're a believer, God has become your Father, and that's why I can come to you and say, brother or sister, you be loved, we share a familial love we are brought together by way of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary and I want to tell you today that if you're here and you know the Lord maybe what you need this day is to be reminded that you are loved you are covered by an unending loved when I was raised my parents took me to church every Sunday every Sunday you guys have heard me say it I was raised on drugs I got drugged to church Sunday morning Sunday night our church had midweek on on Wednesday they dragged me back on Wednesday night never one time in all of my life do I remember us having like a family meeting on Saturday to say you know are we going to go to church tomorrow we we just did and uh, I'm grateful for that and I'm thankful for a mom and dad that said hey we're going to do that and and uh, they taught me a lot I kind of think it's a good idea really for everybody just to say you know uh, th- this, is, this is what people do who worship Jesus Christ. It's a day set aside for that. That wasn't even in my notes. I just felt the Spirit leading me to share that today, okay? So uh, you can do what you'd like with that. But uh, at any rate, I remember at those very earliest ages uh, going to church, and I'd learn things. And, you know, uh, my granddaughter, Callie, she's this big. She can't even really talk yet, but she's memorized a verse in the Bible. And she learned it by coming to church. And a mom that re- reinforces it at home, she uh, says, uh, you know, obey your parents in the Lord for this is right, you know. And, and you can't really understand what she's saying, but I can because I, I speak Klingon or whatever it is she's speaking, you know. And, and uh, I'm glad that, that kids even can learn things. And, and some of the greatest truths I've learned in my life, I learned as, as a child at church. And I remember the song that stood out to me the most when I was coming along. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so, and, and I, I'm so glad to tell you today that Jesus, he loves you. And I want you to know the love of Jesus is unmerited. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to do stupid human tricks or, or uh, double backflips or, or uh, you know, stand on your head and gargle peanut butter to get Jesus to love you. His love's unmerited. It's coming your way. It's, it's unequal. There's no other love like the love of Jesus. It's unconditional. In other words, you can't lose it if you don't meet his conditions. And maybe best of all, it is an unending love. Jeremiah wrote this in Jeremiah 31 and verse 3, the Lord hath appeared of old unto me, saying, yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. And I want you to know today that because he lives, I'm covered by this great love from God. And you can say that for yourself if you know the Lord is your Savior. I've studied theology for many, many years, decades, theology. 
We know most of those words that say ology on the end. That means study of. And the first part of theology is thea or theos. That's just the word for God. Theology is, is a study of God. I'm not saying I know all there is to know about God. My mind can't comprehend all of those things. I'm not saying I know more than anybody else on the study of God. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is I've studied theology for many, many years. And as far as I'm concerned, there's no greater single verse in all of the Bible to shape our theology, our concept, our understanding of God than that great and most familiar verse in the Bible, John 3 and verse 16. And what we learn of God in that verse is this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting love. I want you to know if you know Jesus as your savior because he lives, you can say I am covered by an unending love. Number two, second statement we'll see in this verse is this, you can say I am certain through an everlasting truth. Now, as Paul continues, let's just take the next words as they come. The Bible says here, be ye steadfast, unmovable. Now, those two words go together. They were used in sequence. They, they go together, but they're very different. The first word, steadfast, is more about me. Steadfast deals with me. Uh, the, the, the fact is that in my life, I have these thoughts, I have desires, I have distractions, I have all these kinds of things, doubts periodically. God, what are you doing here? And, and, and if I'm not careful, I'll, I'll be removed from, from the life that God has called me to be. I'll be at the hip, hip and still in bed and breakfast, and I'll miss the breakfast. I'll still be a believer, I'll be in the family of God, but it'll be good, but not all that it could have been. And so steadfast, it's, it's something in my life that makes uh, this decision, I, I'm going to stick with truth. I'm not going to allow these things to move me. Unmovable is very different. So steadfast is about me. Uh, me. Now, unmovable is about other people that want to pull us away from that which is right. So the Bible says, listen, you need to be where you need to be, but you need to understand there are other people, ideologies, philosophies, that will seek to move you away from that which is right. And you can be unmovable. There, there are people and, and influences. And so when you put these words together, steadfast and unmovable, Paul is saying, hey, great news. Because he lives, you don't have to drift through your life making decisions based on your emotions. You don't have to be hot today, cold tomorrow. You don't have to meander your way through life a victim of circumstances. You can be steadfast. And you need to also know that in your life, you don't have to surrender the power to anybody else to chart the course for your life. You can be immovable because he lives. You know, sometimes when life seems to overwhelm us, we say things like, I just can't. And it's cliche, but someone has once said, whether you say I can't or I can, you're probably right either way. And so many often, we pro so many times we prophesy over our own lives and they become self-fulfilling prophecies. Oh man, I could never do that or surely that's what's going to happen to me. The Bible says, be ye steadfast, unmovable. I, I love that it says, be ye steadfast. If you're still with me, say amen. amen. It didn't say do steadfast. Do unmovable it said be why is that well because he lives the capacity to be steadfast the capacity to be unmovable it's found in jesus christ and so the bible doesn't give me a to-do list here it gives me a to-done list and says based on that therefore therefore i spent the whole chapter telling you he's alive therefore based on the resurrection of jesus christ let me tell you what you're to be steadfast immovable oh listen that's a great thought as long as truth 
of, of life comes from the Lord, we need to know that we have the power to do and to be all that he would have. It's tied to Jesus Christ. How many of you would agree with me today that our Lord and Savior, he's not going anywhere anytime soon. He's the Lord of all time. In Revelation 1 and verse 18, I love the way Jesus said this. He said, I am he that liveth and was dead. How's that for an introduction? You know, hey, introduce yourself. Tell us a little about yourself. Jesus said, well, I'm he that's alive. I was dead. I mean, who can say that? Jesus can say that. He said, I was alive, and, and, or I, was, uh, uh, I am alive, I was dead. He said, behold, I'm alive forevermore, amen, and have the keys of hell and death. We've got an evermore kind of Savior. He was brought back from the dead, never again to die. Now, we do not have to be moved by those things that entice us or allure us. I think of David in Psalm 16 and verse 8, he said it this way. He said, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. Listen to what he says here. I shall not be moved. David did not say, because I'm awesome, I'm better than you because of my grit, my determination, my resolve, my, my IQ, I shall not be moved. He said, nope, that's not it at all. I've just set the Lord before me. I've already predetermined in the course of my life. I want to follow him. And, and as I set the Lord at my right hand, here's what's going to happen. I'm not going to be moved because because the Lord's the one who's right there. That's the seat of power and authority and control. And he says, as long as I give my life to God, I'm not going to be moved because he's not going to be moved. And too many times we're fighting within and, and, and the result is instability. James, the younger brother of our Lord and Savior, in James 1 and verse 8, he said this, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And when I enter into those unstable seasons in life, I'm testifying about myself that the Lord is not in the position in my life in, in which he needs to be. And I'm telling you today that when we do what David did and set the Lord always before us, and we focus on who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, we will find that we can and will do all that he's given us to do. No, we don't have to be pushed in one direction in, in the course of our lives by our desires or pulled in one direction or another by the desires of others. We can be steadfast and unmovable because Jesus Christ is alive. I'm covered by an unending love. I am certain through an everlasting truth. Statement number three, I am called to an eternal purpose. I love this statement. Let's look at the next words in this verse. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. Now, something we have to nail down before we go any further in this thought. Always abounding in the work of the Lord. I've got to tell you today, the work belongs to the Lord. Now, there are some today who teach doctrine. They charade it as Christian doctrine, but it's a scam through and through who will tell you the objective in the course of life is to find a way to connive, to manipulate, to trick God into getting on with your program. So here's how, here's how the rationale goes. You need to figure out what you want. You need to name it and claim it. And you need to figure out in life, this is what I need to be really, really happy. And then you find a way to connive, trick, manipulate God into becoming a part of the work of your life. And I got to tell you, that is not New Testament Christianity. The Christianity of which I read in the Bible is this. If, if I really want to live the life that God's given me to live, I don't need to figure out what I want and try to get God to help me do what I want. I need to figure out what God is doing in the world today, and then I need to say, God, hey, I'll be right there. The work belongs to God. Now, that would be bad news if you did not believe that God knew what was best for your life. But God knows me better than I know me. God created me and he created you. And so a starting point here, if we're going to understand what it is to be called to an eternal purpose, is to understand that that purpose comes from an eternal God. The work belongs 
to God. And then I love the way Paul wrote in here, always abounding. Abounding means to overflow. It's referring to growth and progress and productivity in the, in the course of life. But I've got to remind you, lest we forget, that when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he was not writing to a collection of individuals. He's writing to a church family. And I've got to tell you right now, I'm not really preaching to a collection of individuals. I know we're all at different places in our lives. We're all going through different stuff. I get all of that. But I'm, I'm really not preaching to a collection of individuals. I'm preaching to a group specifically. I'm preaching to the Coastline Church family. You say, well, Pastor, why would you emphasize that? Because if we're going to understand that we're to be always abounding in the work of the Lord, we've all got to find that that's a personal thing. The implication is this. There is an expectation that those who name the name of Christ are involved in the work of Jesus Christ. Can someone say amen? amen? That's the understanding. You say, well, wait, I thought ministry was something that pastors do. Pastors are a little weird anyhow. You know, they just sit around and read and pray all the time. And that ministry, that's what they do. Or maybe it's what the deacons do or, or what a few people do. And Paul would say, listen, I've got to tell you, because he lives, there's a purpose that lives with him. Because he's eternal, there's an eternal purpose for which we live. And therefore, my beloved brethren, you can be steadfast and unmovable and you can be always abounding in the work of the Lord when you say, I'll invest my life in the work that belongs to God, the Lord's work. This same church, Corinth, Paul wrote to them in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 14. He said this, for the body is not one member, but many. When he said body there, he's referring to a local church. He said, you've got to understand that the church isn't just one body. It's a lot. It's a lot. It's many. He went on a few verses later to say this in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 18. He said, but now hath God set the members, every one, in, uh, one of them in the body, as it hath pleased him. So the body is a local church, and God has set the members and the people in the church in a way that pleases him. Can I just say this? I'm really thankful for a sovereign God who in eternity past, for some reason, made the decision that our lives would intersect. I mean, we could have lived and died and never got to know one another. One of the greatest joys of my life is hanging out with people like you and doing God's work with people like you. It's wonderful. And the Bible says God put everybody in a place, and he thought, that's pleasing to me. I'll put them there. I'll put them there. God thought of all this. And in 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 27, the Bible says, Now oh, ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. The in particular means there's a place for you. There's a place for you. There's work for each of us to do. What makes this an everlasting purpose is the fact that it's not our work. It's the work of the Lord. I always worked growing up. When I was in high school, I worked for a fine dining establishment. It was called Al Capone's Pizza. <laughs> and uh, so I, I was in the syndicate or the mob or whatever. I don't know what it was, but I worked in a pizza place. And... Um, you know, in general, you know, let's say school, school year's getting started, I'd have football practice every day till 5, and I had to be to work at 5.30, and uh, I never showered after football practice, and working in a restaurant, clean food environment, never did. Uh, I had to wear a white button-down collar shirt and a red vest, and it had Al Capone's name tag, Steve, and, and uh, I was rolling in the dough back in the day. I was bringing in $3.35 an hour. I'm not trying to boast, okay? I'm just telling you what was happening. And uh, give, the Lord gets all the glory for that, okay? 335. Um, but what I did was I delivered pizza, which meant I made tips. 
and I like tips. I mean, those go home with you that night. I mean, you put them in your pocket, and you, you're, you, know, you don't have to wait. It's like instant gratification tips right in the pocket. Uh, I take it home. I'd, I'd make $12 or $15 an hour, and, you know, uh, that's, that was back just after black and white days in TV, all right, not too long after that, and, and uh, that was pretty good income for me. And I got to tell you what I learned. I learned if I hustled and worked fast and hard and was kind to people and, and, and somewhat amicable at the door that... Uh, I could deliver more pizzas than the other guys, and I could even get better tips if I was just more personable. I learned that hard work paid off. So I worked hard, and it paid off. Did I mention I got tips? <laughs> paid off. One day, the owner of Al Capone's Pizza, his name was Mo, his name was Mohammed Bonadecker. his name. He came to me one day and he said, Steve, uh, I've been watching you work. And it actually came to me and he said, Steve, my friend. He always said that everybody was his friend. Steve, my friend. And he went on and told me I was a hard worker and complimented me. And I was glad to hear that. And he said I was doing a good job. And he asked me if I wanted to become the assistant manager. And, uh, you know, even at that age, I, I longed to lead. And I wanted to be a part of something. And I don't know why. That just resonated with me. Assistant manager. I thought, you know, I'm going places in life, you know. And, uh, I was happy about it, and he said, all right, we'll do that, and I got a massive raise, 50-cent raise, three eighty-five an hour, and uh, so uh, I uh, became assistant manager, and, you know, I'd, I'd work every night, close at 10 on weeknights, Friday, Saturday, it would close at, at 11, and uh, of course, I'd work to close every night, and then I'd have to close the register and prepare all the receipts and put it in the bag and lock the bag and then put it in the floor safe, and I mean, there was a whole thing I had to do, and it was a great experience, and and uh, you know that first night after I got trained, I, I got done, and I was so proud of myself, and, and uh, worked hard, and we had a good night, and I was glad for that. But I saw these, you know, these sloths I was leading, these delivery drivers who were now far beneath me, you know, <laughs> and they were going home with pockets full of money. And I thought, wait a minute, I got promoted, and I'm making like a third of what I was making before. I don't like this. It dawned on me, you know, before I was kind of working for me. I'd work hard, I'd move fast, I'd be extra kind, I was doing that, there was something in it for me, and and I thought, you know, I'm not working for me anymore, I'm I'm working for Mo, I want to go back to working for me, I want to be in a position where my hard work, my my ethic, my, my, my timeliness, all of those things will affect my bottom line. In fact, I left that job a few years later. I went to work for an aerospace company, uh, and, and, and I thought, you know, uh, they had a couple different package offers that you could get a, a small salary uh, with a small commission, or you can just get straight commission. I've got to tell you, I don't know why I was thinking this, but at the time I thought, I'll go straight commission. I don't want you to tell me what I'm worth. I'll tell me what I'm worth, all right? And uh, I'm not recommending that for everyone, but... How many of you can discern I'm probably not a socialist, okay? I like a system that says, you work hard, you get rewarded. If someone's a slacker, it's going to be tough on them. I thought, I will work hard. It was a good day when I decided no one else can determine what I'm worth. I'll do that for myself. Thank you very much. Let me tell you about a better day in my life. When I came to terms with the reality that my standing, my position, my stature was not based on my own merit my own dogmatism, my own ability to work hard or press harder than somebody else. It was the day when I had to say, God, you know, the best work I can produce in comparison to what Paul calls here the work of the Lord, it's so small. 
I mean, I don't know if any of you have ever been in an airplane crash before, but if you ever did and a slide popped out the side, I, I had a time where I worked in the aerospace industry. That's what I did. I sold those evacuation slides to airlines. I guess we're all glad they're, uh, glad they're there if, if we need them, but, but I just thought, God, that's important, and, and I'm grateful for employment. We all understand that, but I said, God, I, I want my life to count for something more than that in the sense of plugging into uh, the other work you're doing. I want to live for you and your glory. To this same church in Corinth, Paul said this. He said, guys, listen, whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever it is you're doing, do it all to the glory of God. Now, I remember the day when that became the prayer of my heart. God, when I'm at work, help me to glorify you there. When I'm at home, help me to glorify you there. God, help me. Help me to glorify you. And friends, I'm telling you today that we have a purpose that calls us to rise up. I mean, this stirs me up just to think about it, that a real God who conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave, he victoriously, bodily, literally rose again from the dead. And because he lives, because he lives, I'm called to an eternal purpose. And I don't have to live my life based on the pressure of others or based on the passions from within, but I can live for the pleasure of the one who saved me. And I'm grateful for that. That leads us to the final statement that we can make. If we know the Lord, here it is. I am confident of an exceptional result. I am confident of an exceptional result. Now, these final words here are super important. In fact, they're so important, if they weren't there, it would have kind of made the rest of the verse less than what it came to be. Now, again, get the picture. Paul's been writing a whole, a whole chapter. He's a lawyer. Paul is trained as a lawyer. He, he was building a case, building a case. Here's the gospel. The resurrection's part of it. It's the main part of it. It all rises and falls on did Jesus do what he said. Resurrection, resurrection, resurrection. He gets to the last verse, and Paul's just fired up. It's a massive crescendo. I mean, if Paul were preaching here, veins are bulging, spit, four rows deep. I mean, Paul's ecstatic about what it is he's teaching. He's just fired up. What does he say? For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Now, I want you to notice what it is we've been called to do. Labor. And most of us don't like that word even. You know? I looked it up just to make sure it meant what I thought it did. And I want you to know when I looked it up, it does not mean work. What I read under the definition, it wasn't work. I promise this is what I read. Hard work. <laughs> Even worse than I thought. <laughs> Hard work. The next de definition was to toil. A few definitions down, it was just the word trouble. And if what I understand, we're learning that as we seek to live for God, it's not always going to be easy. It's challenging at times. It's not a life absent of trouble. But the key here is to see that what we do is in the Lord. In the Lord. For as much as you know that your labor is not in vain, in the Lord. In the Lord. What, what is taught to us in that is that it's God that empowers us. We're doing it in the Lord and His strength. And it's also the understanding that when it's in the Lord, we're, we're doing that which is right, for God would surely never lead us to do what is wrong. There's a great verse in Romans chapter 11 that I want to share with you guys. And uh, Ethan, if you could put that up on the screen, I just want to point some things out. I love this. Uh, forgive me, my mom was an English teacher, and uh, I, I learned the, the value of prepositional phrases, and I love the writings of the Apostle Paul. He uses them in such an amazing way. All right, so for of him who him 
Paul said, of him and through him. Who? Him. So we're of him, through him, and, and, uh, uh, and to him. And look at that. He said, we're of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Even Paul amened himself when he preached sometimes, okay? So he said, this is such a good verse. I'm just going to say amen right now after I wrote it. I'm of him. I'm through him. I'm to him. What was he saying? He was saying, I'm, a, I'm of him. God is my source. I'm of him. I'm of him. He's my source. I, I'm through him. What does that mean? God's my force. I do all things through him, by his power, by his might. He's my force, and then I'm to him. He's my course. It, it begins with him. It, it commences. It, it culminates with him. He said all of it is about Jesus Christ. And friends, listen, our labor is not in vain. And I want to encourage you with this thought today. Someone needs what I'm going to say right now. It might be you, so listen. I want you to know today God pays more attention to what we do than he does to what gets done. Let, let that minister to your heart because we obsess over what gets done and God pays more attention to what we do than what gets done. You say, Pastor, what are you talking about? Well, let me give you an example over and over in the book of the Revelation, over and over. I'll give you one example. I could give you a whole bunch of them. Jesus said things like this. For example, Revelation 2 and verse 2. I know thy works and thy labor. We say, well, he's being redundant. He's saying the same thing, just in different ways. Jesus didn't waste any words. He, he said, I want you to know something. Uh, I know thy works and thy labor. We say, well, it's the same thing. No, no, it's not. You, you know, we've used words like this before. Sometimes we'll speak it in this way. We'll say the work of that man's life or that woman's life. The work, we're talking about the result, the product, the, the thing that happened from it all. Jesus said, listen, I know what got done. But more than that, I know your labor. I know the work you did and the pain you endured and the hardship you went through. I, I know the labor. I, I, I see the work. I do see it. But I want you to know, I know your labor what 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 went into what got done and you know sometimes in life we're plugging away we're doing what's right we're looking around it seems like not much is happening it can feel about a bit vain or empty but jesus says guys listen the outcome is up to me you, you just make sure you're doing what I've told you to do. You follow the path that I laid out for you in the Bible, and, and I'll see the result will be all that I would have it to be. It will be an exceptional result when you follow me. Think of that. Sometimes we get to work and we think, you know, uh, I don't know if much is happening. Jesus says, trust me. Just do what I've given you to do. Just be faithful. Just, just do what I've given you to do. You'll see the results. Sometimes I'll think, you know, I don't, I don't think that anyone's even noticing what I'm doing. Nobody even really cares what I'm doing. I think in moments like that, it's, it's good to know that, that Jesus says, I see your labor. I see it. Sometimes we, we feel like, you know, nobody says good job or that a boy or anything like that. And, and Jesus would say, well, listen, just, just keep on Keep it on, and, and maybe you'll hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And that's better than if everyone in the world said you're great and you were missing the mark in my eyes. Keep going. I love people, I do. I, but I have to tell you today, if your goal in life is to please people, you're going to quit from frustration or just go out of your mind. Now, i got to say something, but I don't want any of you to tell anyone. I don't want this getting out of this room. You just can't please some people. 
I mean, it just can't be done. They're unpleasable. And a lot of times we hone in on those chief critics who are beyond the capacity of finding pleasure from your life. And we try to evaluate our life based on what we perceive their opinion of us to be. I want you to know by some people's standards, you will never do enough. You will never give enough. You will never have enough. You will never be enough. But you know, when you do what you do for the Lord, you'll see that He'll use your life in ways that's unimaginable to some. It, it's the opposite of a vain life. It's a, it's a fulfilling life. And, and listen, I know we have those times. I've had many of those times over the years where I just thought, this is nuts, man. I'm not knocking myself out. I don't know if anybody even really cares. And Sometimes the ones we try to help the most are the ones that seem to appreciate it the least, and, and we can think these thoughts. But, you know, in that moment, it's good to come back to a passage like this and be reminded that, that uh, it, it's, it's not my job in life to try and make every person in the world happy. I want to love God, and I want to love people, and I want to be as friendly as I can be, but i, I got to march to the beat of God's drum for my life, walk according to his, his cadence, and trust that what will happen will be according to his will. I need to try to please God. Now, I want you to know today, positionally, positionally, positionally if you're a child of God you are accepted by him positionally if you're a child of God you are you are a person in whom God finds pleasure as a loving father he can look at his child and say I am pleased in my child positionally it's a settled issue we're not laboring to find this kind of acceptance or pleasing from God but when you understand that relationship by grace you can make a decision like you know my father is pleased in me but I know there's some stuff I could do that he'd find pleasing as well. And so I want to do stuff that pleases God, not to get him to find pleasure in me. He already is pleased with me. But I want to do stuff that he finds pleasing as well. Oh, that's a great way to live. Friends, I want you to know something. When you put your life in God's hands and say, God, I'm just going to do whatever it is you tell me to do, and the outcome, God, well, it's going to be good enough for me because it's whatever you did with the life that I gave to you. Now, Paul uses the word at the end of this chapter, vain, vain, vain. And what's interesting to me is that's the same word he used in the beginning and throughout this chapter, vain. You remember when this study got started, Paul talked about the resurrection, and he, he just postulated the question, okay, let's look at it through your lens. What if Jesus didn't rise again from the dead? Remember that? And he had some words for that. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, he said this, And if Christ be not risen, then is our preaching vain, and your faith is also vain. Jesus, he said, if Jesus was not alive from the dead, if he didn't rise again, he said, I'll tell you what, my preaching's vain. You're wasting your time in church today, and, and your faith is vain. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17, he said this, And if Christ be not raised, in other words, if he's not alive, your faith is vain, and ye are yet in your sins. He said, we have no answer for the sin issue and you can never have a relationship with a holy God uh, because we're sinners. He said, vain, vain. And yet Paul concludes this passage by saying, basically, guys, it's not vain. Your life matters. We, we do have his love. We have his truth. We have his purpose. And his results will come. No, we're, we're not what Stephen Hawking said. We saw this in our last study. You are not, you are not an advanced breed of monkey on a minor planet of a very average star. No, 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 that is not who you are. God calls us to a life of meaning, of meaning. 
And what I shared with you today is not theory. You're free to disagree with it, but don't, don't you dare call it theory. It is not theory. It is theology. It is theology. It's a belief that impacts our behavior. Amen. In the 1960s, there was a couple by the name of Bill and Gloria Gaither. They were traveling around from church to church, sharing their music, and in a very short period of time, uh, Bill went through a whole series of things. Um, he became very sick, and that was hard for him. When you don't feel well, it's hard to minister in music. They had a massive family crisis. And uh, the third thing was some critics arose that uh, just kind of talked bad about them, judging their motives, you know. You ever notice sometimes hard times come in threes? I don't know why that is. Um, but at any rate, they had, they had three things, big things come. And Bill was always an upbeat guy, loved music, always writing music, always had a song in his heart. And for the first time in his life, he became super discouraged, went into a season of depression. And when he learned what we studied today, he sat down with his wife. And they wrote a song, and the song they wrote has the very same title as our sermon series does right now, Because He Lives. With everything going against him, he didn't feel good. His family was going through a very, very difficult time. A lot of critics were trying to uh, just basically uh, put him off to the sidelines. He began to think, man, Jesus is alive. And because he's alive, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future, life is worth the living just because he lives. It changes everything. Now, Lisa and I missed the breakfast at the bed and breakfast. And that was too bad. But we got over it. We'll be okay. I've yet to wither away to nothing by lack of a meal, okay? <laughs> but if we miss what I've done my best to teach over the last two weeks... we will have missed out on the life to which God has called. A life that understands the person and work of Jesus Christ, God the Son, that understands that all of what we believe about the Bible really flows out of the resurrection. That that is not only the means for spiritual salvation, but the gospel message and the power contained in it is what gives us purpose and direction and meaning in life. If we miss that, Paul said, there is a word if you miss the resurrection that will define your existence. He said, vain. Vanity. Empty. But when we embrace this, he said, you've got to know 